right, good morning. Right, good morning. Good morning, church. Let's grab it started. Glad that you're a buzz. Glad that you're ready for this. If you're new here, just to give you a little bit of housekeeping. If you would like to get up at any point and go get a refill of coffee or tea or get another bagel or leave, uh, feel free to do so. You're not going to be bothering any of us. I want you to feel comfortable here and making your way about the room. And uh, we don't ever want to feel like you have to just stay seated uh, and face forward. So we want you to feel comfortable with that. Uh, I want to thank uh, Mark for jumping up here, not only leading us with Jesus Loves Me, but he preached last Sunday, did a great job. I had a chance to listen to that this morning, or I'm sorry, this morning, this week. And um, sorry about the popping in the microphones, those have been fixed. Uh, so if you were here last week, we kind of had a mic show. And uh, the, so those have been fixed. Thanks for your patience with that. want to give you a quick update. Uh, we've been talking over probably the past year on uh, advancing uh, our facilities here, getting another building, paving the parking lot, blowing that wall out of the sanctuary, making the sanctuary bigger, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. I just want to give you a, a Reader's Digest update. A lot has been going on, not visible to you, but a lot of behind the scenes with Pat and John and the teams, a lot of correspondence with the county. I'm sure you can understand. Uh, that when you work with government and you work with zoning and you work with permitting, it doesn't always move uh, at lightning speed. There, there are some things that happen, uh, but things are happening. And uh, we are, you might not know this, but we have a special use permit. Did I say it right, John? For us to have a church on this facility. In other words, this is a residential area. So the county gives us a special use permit to even hold church services here. We are in the midst of reapplying for that and, and getting that re-permitting. Is that correct? Uh, and so um, that process takes a little bit of time. And at the same time, parallel to that, we're working on uh, plans for our new building. The current building that you see here, not the sanctuary, but our entire building, is about 6,000 square feet. Uh, we're working on getting permitting and zoning for a huge children's ministry office wing in the front of the church that's about 4,000 uh, square feet. Uh, and then the idea is to take the area where Explorers is, turn that into a true lobby, uh, pave the parking lot, blow this wall out, and have an extended sanctuary. So there's a lot of moving parts in vision and direction, but there's a lot of legwork that has to go in, a lot of emails. John spends hours uh, crafting letters and emails to go to the county and back and forth on what they need. Um, Matter of fact, uh, a number of months ago, we did a traffic survey in here. We asked you which way you come to church, which way you turn in, and all that, and we had you stand. It was kind of goofy. Well, that actually helped us a great deal because both the county and Louisville said, we're not going to make you go through the hoops of a true traffic survey, and that saved us about $3,000, uh, which is good, but John initiated that on December 17th, and we just got confirmation like two weeks ago, and so so that, and that's one of many, many, many hurdles. So that lets you know what the process uh, is in regards to advancing and growing these facilities. I will say that any kind of delay uh, in the process is not in any way on our end. The delay is submitting the, the necessary paperwork to the county, waiting for them to get back to us. And usually this team, Pat and John and Donald and everybody else that's on that team, you guys are like five steps ahead waiting 
for them to ask and you already have it. And so we're working as fast as we can. Uh, in the coming months, we're going to have some uh, blueprints and pictures that we can put up so you can kind of see the idea of, of what's being uh, asked of the county and what that might look like. Uh, and so we're just going to ask for your patience. Right now, the prayer request is uh, that please be praying for this. Uh, it's about to be submitted in the next week or so uh, that a special use re-permitting for our facility. That's the next hurdle. So that's what you guys can be praying for. And we'll be trying to give you regular updates um, both in the scoop, on Facebook, on Instagram. If you're not following us on either of those two, please do so. We share a lot of prayer requests on both Instagram and Facebook. Uh, we also give a lot of updates. So please um, be following us in that regard. <sighs> okay. That is it. Enough business for this morning. I'm sure I missed something. If you have additional questions, you can see John and Pat and Grant. They will be able to at least help you find the answer, uh, even if they don't have a definitive one for you. We're in the book of John. We're, we're in this series where we're looking at the very first epistle of, of John, First uh, John. And so if you have your Bibles, I would love for you to open up uh, those. Uh, the bulk of the scriptures will not be on the screen. We're going to include you this morning. So if you have your Bibles, open those up to First John. If you're going to use one of our Bibles, they're in the seats in front of you or behind you. should have access to one, or you can turn your phones on in the various ways that you do so. First um, John... Chapter 1, verses 1 through 4, John sets uh, the incarnation of the word of life uh, in a very profound and visible and human being whose name was Jesus Christ. He begins by making that abundantly clear that, that this Jesus was not a religious figment. It wasn't a ghost. He wasn't uh, just something that was made up, that he was a real man. He was real God walking amongst us. Uh, John is writing to these churches throughout uh, Ephesus, the area of Ephesus and Asia Minor all throughout there, not to one very, very specific church, to many, many churches that will receive this as pastoral uh, guidance. And today in our passage, uh, as Mark concluded us last week, we, we learned about who he's writing about, and now we're going to be able to unpack what was his message. The, the person of Jesus came, and now what was this message that John speaks of that Jesus brought? And so I'm going to begin by reading a pretty lengthy uh, chunk. Uh, you might have thought to yourself or had the conversation with your significant other, say, we've spent two weeks on four verses. How long is this going to take us? Uh, and so we're going to catch up uh, quite a bit here, starting in verse 5 of chapter 1. Here's what it says. This is the message we have heard from him, talking about Jesus, and declare to you, God is light. In him there is no darkness at all. If we claim to have fellowship with him and yet we walk in darkness, we lie, and we do not live by the truth. If we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus, his son, purifies us from all sin." If we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. If we claim we have not sinned, we make him out to be a liar and his word has no place in our lives. Chapter 2, verse 1, my dear children, I write this to you so that you will not sin. 
But if anybody does sin, this is great news, we have one who speaks to the Father in our defense, Jesus Christ, the righteous one. He is the atoning sacrifice for our sins. And not only for ours, but also for the sins of the whole world. He came for everybody. We know that we have uh, come to know him if we obey his commands. The man who says, I know him, but, I, but does not do what he commands is a liar. And the truth is not in him. But if anyone obeys his word, God's love is truly made complete in him. This is how we can know him. This is how we can know that we are in him. Whoever claims to live in him must walk as Jesus did. Verse 7, dear friends, I'm not writing a new command. In other words, this isn't new news, but an old one, which you have had since the beginning. This old command is the message you have heard, yet I am writing you a new command. Its truth is seen in him, in Jesus. And you, because of the darkness, is passing and the true light is already shining. Anyone who claims to be in the light but hates his brother is still in the darkness. Whoever loves his brother lives in the light, and there's nothing in him to make him stumble. But whoever hates his brother in the darkness and walks around in the darkness, he does not know where he is going because the darkness has blinded him. It's kind of like a Dr. Seuss book. There's a lot of hymns and lights and darkness, and if you're in, you're out, and if you're out, you're in. But here's what's interesting about the scriptures as we try and unpack, what is John getting at? The reason why he says this isn't new news, the reason why he's talking about this is an old idea is because this has been evidence, been prevalent throughout scripture even since the beginning. If you look at the scriptures during the Exodus, God appeared to the Israelites in the form of a pillar of light. It guided them and they followed it. When Moses came down from Mount Sinai, his face glowed with a reflection of God's light. In Psalm 104, the psalmist says, Bless the Lord, O my soul. You are very great. You are clothed with splendor and majesty, covering yourself with light. I love this. As a cloak, stretching out the heaven like a curtain. At the transfiguration, it says that Jesus was transfigured before them and his face shone like the sun and his garments became as white as light. 2 Corinthians 4 states that God has shown himself in our hearts to give the light of knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ. The psalmist eloquently wrote, your word is a lamp unto my feet and it's a light unto my path. Jesus says, I am the light of the world. He who follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of light. And on and on and on throughout all of the scriptures, we read, we, we investigate this idea that God describes himself as light. And in him, there is no darkness. This is really important because what we're going to be dealing with this morning is sin. It's not super popular. It's not super exciting. But the antidote, the excuse, the out of sin is exciting because God is splendor. God is glory. In him, he illuminates darkness. He shines light on darkness. And you and I both know this, darkness is all around us. It's in our homes. It's in our workplace. It's in our neighborhoods. It's in our heart. 
And the love of God, God's presence, as Mark unpacked this, his fellowship with the believer shines light on that darkness. His light points the way to go. Sin. Theologian William Barclay notes this. Flaws which are hidden in the shade are obvious in the light. It's pretty easy for you and I to keep our flaws hidden when we just stay in the shade. It's pretty easy not to see the inadequacies, to not see our struggles, to not see our sin if we just keep it on the down low, if we keep it behind a curtain, if we keep it in the closet. And yet the minute we bring it into the light, then all of a sudden those flaws are no longer hidden. They're obvious. Again, John is not just teaching Christian truth. Sometimes we can just read what, what we will read in the Bible as though all he's doing is, is teaching Christians, teaching Christian truth, teaching uh, Christian doctrine. But we have to remember what John is also doing is he is confronting some very, very specific false teachers throughout the land that are teaching things that are absolutely not true. He emphatically states that if one professes to possess the light and to dwell in it, in other words, to have eternal life, to have that fellowship, to have that hope, to have that joy, he or she will continue to show evidence in their life. But if truth and righteousness are absent from one's life, that person, no matter what he or she says, no matter what he or she does, they are not walking in the light, but they're stumbling around in darkness. You see, it's easy to talk a big game. When I was a youth pastor in California uh, with high school and college students, one of the big things that we would do with students is take them surfing or skateboarding, neither of which I could do and still have life. And so... Uh, I would take students uh, to the beach. Our, our church was uh, just not even a mile from the beach, and we would go down, and uh, I would take a bunch of students. They would get in the water, and at, at, at first, I called myself a surfer. I had just moved there from Chicago. I don't know what I was thinking, but I called myself a surfer. So if people would say, hey, do you surf? I'd say, of course I surf. And so I, I quickly realized I, there's nothing about me that reflects being a surfer. So I went, and I got a board. And I went and I got a wetsuit because where we are, there's only like a month uh, where you don't need a wetsuit. And so I went and got a wetsuit, got a board, um, kind of realized the, the different language that you would use, um, not like profanity, but like uh, the different ways to describe uh, surfing. And I began to act the part. And then I got in the water. <laughs> and I don't, have any of you ever surfed to the point where you thought you're going to die? A couple of you. Okay, so surfing, if you know what you're doing, from what I read and hear, is super fun. Uh, and from what I watched, is super fun. However, if you don't know what you're doing and you're not willing to put the time in to learn, it is literally the closest thing you can come to uh, to meeting your maker. Uh, so when a wave comes and you are at the bottom of the ocean, but you don't know which way is bottom because you're essentially in a washing machine turning you upside down over and over and over and over and over, and you don't know where the top is, and your mind is going, you're running out of air, and there's alerts going off over and over and over, and so I very quickly realized I'm not a surfer, 
but I still told people I was a surfer. Why? Because I had a board and I had a wetsuit, so I would bring my board and I would bring my wetsuit and I would shove it in the sand and I would watch our students and even take pictures of them. And I surfed from the beach. And then when they were done, I would grab my board and grab my wetsuit and put it back in the church van and we would drive away. I was a surfer. And I realized one day, I'm like, who am I kidding? Why am I lugging all this stuff around? I am not a surfer. This is awful. The water is cold. I almost die every time. I, like, I, I, and, and, and even when I sit on the beach, this is absolutely ridiculous. So I, I quickly realized I'm not a surfer. You see, it's easy to talk a big game. I talked a big game. I am a surfer. I think I've been up twice in my life for a total of 15 seconds, maybe. That might be stretching the big fish theory. It's probably like six seconds total. I am not a surfer. And you see, during the time of John's epistle, he was writing to confront a mistaken way of thought. There were those, these false teachers who thought, I am so intellectually advanced. I am so spiritually advanced. I am the holy of the holiest. I am the Christian. But their lives showed no signs of it. They talked a big game, but they never got in the game. They said they were a surfer, but they never got in the water. And this is what John is confronting they went as far as to say that they were so far advanced that sin ceased to matter in their lives. That sin's power had no longer an effect on them because they had come so far in their relationship with God. Napoleon once said during this time that laws were created for ordinary people but were never meant for the likes of him. This is what John's confronting. And you can understand John, who ate with the man, who had campfires with the man, this Jesus, who woke up and made breakfast with the man, who smelled him, who went on boat rides with him. This John is going, are you kidding me? This is not true. And you have to stop teaching this. In verses 5 through 10, of 1 John chapter 1, John insists that to have fellowship with God, this God who is light, where only true joy can be made complete, as Mark referenced last week, not happy, happy, rah, rah, not, not hey, something bad has happened to me, but I'm going to just smile and, and have a good attitude, not in any way describing joy. Joy is only found in this relationship with the God of all creation who says he is light. That person, to have fellowship, must walk in the light. And that if he or she is still walking in ethical and moral darkness of a Christless life, then he or she cannot have fellowship with God and therefore miss out on joy. That's what John's message is. And you, you and I know this. People today, our culture today, we minimize and, and, and redefine what sin is and what sin isn't. Why? Because it's not very popular. We often allege that, that failures in our lives or certain disorders are a result of how somebody else treated me. 
In other words, I'm only like this because of what I endured, whether it be from childhood or adulthood or this week. This victim mentality reigns mightily as popular culture comforts itself with this false belief that people are generally good and that anything that is considered wrong isn't necessarily wrong, it's just personal preference. And nothing could be farther from the truth. It is reiterated in the junior highs. It's reiterated even in the elementary schools. It's certainly talked about in the universities and above. It's certainly talked about in the workplace, this idea that something isn't necessarily wrong. Because instead of just accepting responsibility for our behaviors, our sin, if you would, people, culture, we have demanded to be accepted just how we are. This is just who I am. Accept it. The problem is that flies in the face of the gospel message. You are who you are in part because of a devastating sin. Because of a, an absolute devastating block between you and light. And yet, as we progress in this way of thinking culturally, we have less and less joy. Have you noticed that? If you look around the world around you, if you look at the workplace, and you look at your school, and you look at relationships, you look at the statistics around marriage, we're just lacking joy. And I believe with all of my heart, there's a correlation between that and just accept me for who I am. And as we do that as a culture, it's getting us deeper and deeper away from the plans that God even had from us from the beginning. Verses 8 through 10 is, is unbelievably clear on this. John says, if we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves. If we confess our sins, he's faithful and just. If we claim we've not sinned, we make him out to be a liar. And friends, that's what's happening in culture. It's not just in pop culture outside these walls. It's happening in the church. We just minimize, minimize, minimize sin. But the topic is very clear. Anyone who confesses his or her sin acknowledges the truth. But the Bible says that to deny one's sinfulness, to deny that I am a sinner, that you are a sinner, that we sin is to lie. And it's precisely that lie, that defense, that justification that keeps us from God's saving work and the day-to-day -day joy that he offers us on a daily basis. And this brings up all kinds of significant theological questions, one being primary. If sin has been defeated once and for all, and death no longer has a final say, and the enemy is absolutely crushed because of that cross, do we need to keep confessing sin? That is a question that is asked on a regular basis in multiple denominations in different churches across the world. And the very critical answer is abundantly, very clearly, yes. Yes, we have to continue to confess sin before God. 
I'm talking on a general sense, and I'm talking on a very specific sense. And you see, sin is indeed conquered, and yet it still needs to be rooted out. Sin is beaten, but it still needs to be ripped out from your heart. You know this. I don't have to convince you of this. Review your weak. Review your sin. You know it still needs to be rooted out. In 1 John chapter 3, we're going to get to this, but in verse 14, it tells us that ultimately sin is death, and there's absolutely no escape from it except for the escape that God provides in Jesus. That's the only escape for sin. Sin is an unavoidable aspect of the human situation in which the gospel speaks of on a regular basis. Sin is, if you want a, a, a working definition of it, sin is alienation or, or lostness. And Jesus Christ is God's initiative and graciousness that then means freedom from sin. That's the gospel message wrapped up in a single sentence. And friends, this is good news. This is great news for all of us in this room, even for those that want nothing to do with God. This is great news. This incredible promise of the gospel is the free and gracious forgiveness of the God of all creation that the Bible makes abundantly clear you and I don't deserve. That there's no reason for us to have a seat at the table. It's forgiveness for everyone who truly repents and believes in the person and the work of the Son of God. If you believe in your heart and you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, you will be saved. Let's pause right now. Uh, you guys getting those buzzes? There's an amber alert. Um, I, I don't remember the person's name, so... Um, do we have a name? Madeline. What is it? Madeline. Madeline. Let's pray for that. God, uh, as these Amber uh, alerts go off on our phones, we just want to pause for a moment and pray that you would keep Madeline safe uh, wherever she is, whatever's going on, that you would um, allow her to be found very quickly, um, and that if this is a, a criminal perpetrator action, that you would put an end to it, that you would convict that heart to turn around and that you would keep her safe. Uh, this we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Um, but here's what's wrong. It's wrong for the one who has received forgiveness to think that they never again need to confess their sins before God and request his forgiveness. It's an ongoing. There's power in the repetitive. There's power in the ongoing. My kids, not so much Naomi anymore, although I do say I love you too, Naomi, but she doesn't fight me back on that. The boys, on the other hand, I will go to the boys on a regular basis. What, what I try and do is, is as often as I absolutely possibly can is I'm constantly saying, I love you guys, I love you guys, I love you guys, I love you, Seth, I love you, Luke, I love you, Max, I'll tell Naomi, but I love you, I love you. And the boys, I love you, Naomi, and the boys will say, you always say that. Stop saying it. I, we know. For me, as a dad, I count that as a win. I want my kids to tell me, stop saying I love you. We know. It's 8 o'clock in the morning and you've told us 10 times. 
Say something else. I tell them I believe in them. I tell them I'm proud of them. I tell them I'll be there with them. And the boys, again, not so much Naomi, the boys will say, stop saying it. But you see, there's something powerful in repetition. There's power that comes with that. Because eventually, they are going to grow taller at some point in their lives. They're going to grow taller, and they are going to become adults. And I want them to be able to look back and go, man, at nauseum, that man said, I love you. At every turn, it was, I love you. Like he didn't know any other phrase. And I feel like that is an example for us coming before God and saying, I'm sorry. Please forgive me for my sin. I'm sorry. I'm sorry that I in part put you on the cross. I'm sorry. And you know what happens when we do that with God? You know what we hear back? I love you. I love you. And I don't know about you, but that never, unlike my boys, that never gets old for me hearing that from God. And if it's been a long time since you've been told, I love you from God, can I just say that to you on his behalf? You are loved by God. Your sin does not take away his love. It makes it even stronger. God loves you. He's crazy about you. Are you guys with me so far? I'll put it this way. Although we are apologetic sinners, we've already been justified once and for all, we have not yet been delivered from the presence and power of sin. That will come one day, but we're not there yet. We will get there. It's like the road trip when your kids keep asking, are we there yet? Does it look like we're there? You ever done that drive through like Nebraska or Kansas? There's, there isn't anything living for sight. And they say, hey, are we there yet? Yeah, get out. We're there. Stupid. Like, we're not there yet. That time will come, but we are not there yet. And we have to, because of that fact, we need to keep confessing or forsaking. That's a theological word. It just means ditch it. That's what forsake means. That's why God says, I will never leave you nor forsake you. I will never ditch you. You ever had that where friends ditch you? Or you do ding dong ditch? How many of you guys did that as a kid? Raise your hand. Ding dong ditch. Bunch of liars or, or angels. And this idea of, of ditching, this like cleaning up and putting off, this is an act that can be referred to back to the Jewish act of washing feet. This washing the dirt off of feet. Now, this is hard for me because I hate feet. Lisa likes feet in the medical sense. I don't like them, medical or personal. Keep your socks on. But this idea of washing the feet, this had to be done on a regular basis and was often accomplished at the hands of a servant. In the Gospels, we see Jesus Christ taking the place of a servant, getting down on his knees, taking the sandals off these grimy, disgusting feet of his best friends, dipping a towel in water and cleaning the feet. 
And the directive for the follower of Christ is the need to regularly confess and to forsake sin, thereby washing the metaphorical dirt off our hearts. But it's important that we remember when we approach God to confess sin and to ask for forgiveness, we don't approach a judge with a wig and a big black robe who's angry and ready to give us the worst of the worst. We approach a loving father. That's who God is. And our passage this morning reminds us that if we confess our sins, God is faithful and righteous to forgive us of those things, to cleanse us, to wash the dirt off our hearts. So I want to revisit as we get ready here to close. I want to revisit how we started. God is light. And Jesus knew this was all going to tie together. He's pretty smart in this. Why? Because God illuminates direction. God shines purpose on your life. God gives identity. God reveals fulfillment. God is joy. God shows the darkness, if you would, the sin in our life, if it's taken into the light. If it's brought up against the backdrop of Jesus Christ, it reveals in our hearts what is wicked, what is wrong, what is distant from God, and gives us this incredible opportunity to then deal with that sin. The translated word confess is brilliant. It means to say the same thing. You ever get frustrated with yourself when you're like, here we are again, God. I'm sorry for my anger. I've only told you that 10,000 times. Here I am again. Don't beat yourself up for that. That's what confession is. That's what it means to confess, to say the same thing. Therefore, believers are to confess their sins, agreeing with God about their sin, their, its reality, and the violation of his will, and then to truly seek by the power and work of the Holy Spirit to repent and to eliminate it from our lives. One commentator reflected on this ongoing confession, saying this, forgiveness is not because of the ongoing confession, but rather the ongoing pattern of confession is because of the forgiveness and transformation. I want to say that to you one more time. Forgiveness is not because of ongoing confession. Ongoing confession is because you have been forgiven and transformed. You don't go to God in confession so that you'll receive forgiveness. You go to him in confession because you have been forgiven. You don't go to God and confess sin so that he'll love you. You go to God and confess because he already loves you. It's not something you do. It's not something you earn. It's not something you obtain because you confessed enough. It's something you receive because he did enough. And that's the truth of the gospel. The commentator goes on to say this, as the Holy Spirit sanctifies believers, he, the Holy Spirit, continually produces within them a hatred for sin. And I want to ask you this question. How's your relationship with your sin? 
Your sin, you know it. What's that relationship like? Is it a friendly relationship? An embracing relationship? A welcoming relationship? Or is it combative? Are you and God fighting together to, to rid and root that sin out? What's your relationship with your sin? On Friday, th this preparing for this sermon has wrecked me this week. And so on Friday, I sat Sandy down. And on my computer, I made a list of all my sin. Everything. From the most minor to the most major. To the embarrassing to the normal. All of my sin. And I sat her down and I said... I need to share with you and confess sin to you. Because this passage is wrecking me. I don't want anything to be in darkness. And I was nervous beyond belief. I was glad she went for a run first. Gave me more time. And when she's done, she, she came back and we sat down at the kitchen table and I opened my laptop and I read every single sin. Past and present. And it was hard. It was more than hard. It was embarrassing. It was humbling. Um, it was overwhelming because I looked at the list and went, man, who am I to mentor someone else? Who am I to pastor? Who am I to lead my family? Who am I to be a friend? Like, look at that list. Ugly. And in that moment, as I just stared at my list and then Sandy and I talked throughout the morning and, and, and processed a little bit, I realized that that list doesn't define me. It's just a list of things that need to continue to be rooted out. But sometimes we can run the risk of looking at that list and going, man, I am horrible. I am broken. Look at that disgusting list. And you see, when repentance is present, we will have a strong desire for God to deal with sin at any cost, regardless of the effect it will have on us personally that we will get to the point where we hate sin. We hate sin globally. We hate the sin in our lives. And we're willing for God to deal with that sin, no matter the cost. Because gross. As followers of Christ, we are habitual confessors. And we demonstrate that not only has God pardoned us from our sin, but he is transforming our lives to root that sin out. So that one day we will face him face to face with an embrace and love. That joy that John speaks of at the beginning of chapter 1, that, that his joy would be made complete. The, this light that guides and cleanses us. This hope that is rooted in our hearts is found absolutely exclusively 
in Jesus Christ. No one else but a relationship with him. You see, the very fact of making excuses or, or, or seeking self-justification for our inadequacies, for our sin, making it to where we can reason ourselves through it on why I act this way, you know what that does is it, it blocks us from confession. And therefore, it blocks us from forgiveness. And therefore, it blocks us from our joy being made complete, that fellowship. Confession's a gift. Confession's one of the greatest gifts we have. And so I want to ask you, what's your relationship with your sin? How much time do you spend in the darkness compared to the light? You may not like this message. I haven't liked it all week. But I've had to deal with it. And men, if you want to be a man, deal with your garbage. Deal with your sin. I had to go all the way down to how I treat the dogs. Anything that I even thought could be considered a sin, I shared with Sandy and I shared with God. Anything that was even remotely, I might have even shared something that wasn't a sin, but I wanted to make sure. You all right? Thought you were slain. When was the last time you shared your sin with your best friend or, or your significant other? When was the last time you sat down and said, here you go. You're going to get both barrels. I'm giving it all to you. Are you scared to? Are you ashamed of it? Are you embarrassed? There isn't a person in this room that doesn't need to sit down with someone else close to you and go, hey, I don't need your forgiveness. Maybe you do, but I need you to listen. I need someone else on this planet other than God to hear my stuff. I want to encourage you to do that. Don't wait. Do it today. Go out to lunch, go home, sit down, stare at each other in the face, and share your garbage. Take responsibility for who you are, and then bring that before God, and let him continue to take what is in the darkness and bring it into the light. And again, Jesus knew all this was going to fit together. He preached this sermon on the mount in Matthew chapter 5, verse 16. He said, let your light your forgiveness, your grace, your mercy, your joy, everything that comes with a fellowship with me, let your light shine before men in such a way that they might see your good works. And friends, guess where that starts? Your good works starts with confession. To be washed, to be made clean, to be made whole again. That they might see your good works and glorify your Father who is in heaven. And John tells us that the essence of the Christian life first is to realize our sin by the revelation of the Holy Spirit's work in our lives and then to go to God for forgiveness, which can wipe away the past and cleanse us for the future. Sometimes the best way to do that is in worship. Sometimes we can't put it into words, but we can put it into song. And for some of you here or you're listening online, that there is hurting and there's brokenness inside you. 
and you don't quite know where to start or, or even what to do with that, allow worship to be that starting point. Allow worship to be that thing that brings you to that next place in your fellowship with God. Would you stand with me and let's do that. Let's worship together.